Um, there's a pastor from America and he visited a church in China. Uh, due to severe persecution in China, the church is known as being underground uh, because it's met um, so much opposition from the authorities, fear of imprisonment, fear of death. And this pastor in China, who explained what the five pillars of this house church movement had at their core. If you've been at Town Church a while, if it's not your first time, you know we have uh, four core values. We call it the church we want to be. Uh, these guys had five. The first three for this church in China were very similar to ours. Uh, they had, firstly, uh, a deep commitment to prayer, a dependence on God. That's what, one of ours, very similarly. Secondly, they had a commitment to the Word of God, to the Bible. Everyone in that church learning and reading the Bible together. It's very similar to ours as well. Thirdly, they had a commitment to share the gospel, that every member of the church would be boldly sharing the good news of Jesus. Again, it lines up pretty well with where ours are. Now, there's good questions to be had about how we're doing in those three, but they are pretty similar. Their fourth one was a, a regular expectation of miracles. Because of their prayer life, because of what they'd seen before, they expected God to act miraculously through his spirits. The fifth one, though, is the one we're going to focus on today. The fifth one of this church in China is this. This is what the pastor said in China. He said, the fifth pillar we embraced was suffering for the glory of Christ. The fifth pillar we embraced was suffering for the glory of Christ. Listen to that. Built into the DNA of this church, the church that they wanted to be was one that would embrace suffering and do whatever it takes for the glory of Christ. This is China. They're underground because as soon as they live out commitment three to share the gospel, they're going to be imprisoned. They're going to be killed. And they said, okay, this is what the Bible says. This is what Jesus seems to say is a mark of his followers as we're going to see. They will share in his sufferings. So that's core to who we are. How could you stop a church like that who is willing to risk everything for the sake of proclaiming Jesus and living for him? One willing to take his words seriously. In uh, the book of Acts, we see stories of the disciples after Jesus has gone up to heaven, the disciples and what they did, and they were preaching the gospel, standing up for truth, and the crowd they were speaking to were furious. Here in Acts 5, it says this, it says they called the apostles in, that is the crowd, and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, the place they were speaking, rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The disciples were rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering for the disgrace of the name of Jesus. In our passage, we're starting where Archie finished. And as you probably already sensed, today's not going to necessarily be particularly comfortable at times. It's been a really challenging passage to get into. A few weeks ago, Archie, as he spoke, he talked about the glorious doctrine of adoption. That those who are Christians, those who have followed Jesus, know the glorious gift of being known as a child of God. And a child in such an amazing full sense, as he explained, a child with all the privileges of being a child with a glorious inheritance. We become heirs, we inherit amazing blessings, eternal life with God forever. And then read with me verses 17 and 18. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, 
in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Notice that clause in that sentence, if indeed we share in his sufferings. What does that look like for us here in Bista? What does it look like for me? What does it look like for you? If you're not a Christian here today, you're so very, very welcome. And I make no apologies for starting pretty strongly today from our passage with some pretty clear facts about what the Christian life is like, about what Jesus says. We're going to see in a few verses the glorious, magnificent, sure and certain hope we have as a Christian, the help we have from the Spirit. But today we're also struck with another fact, one which we maybe are in danger of missing in our lives. The Christian life is one marked with suffering. It's pretty clear here, it's pretty clear throughout the New Testament. What is our experience of suffering like Jesus? What is yours as we look here at verses 17 and 18? We're going to see in a minute about suffering which we have because we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world with frail bodies. But I want to focus in on this on a minute. Why did Jesus suffer? Because we're called to share in his sufferings. He suffered utter rejection because of what he said, because of what he did, and he was willing to do it for our sake. So for us now, think of the world we live in. We live in a a pretty compassionate world now, Um, very aware of people's thoughts and feelings, and this is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. But there is a danger then we lose sight of what God's thoughts and desires are. You see, True compassion takes into account far more than what a person might feel today. It takes into account what they might feel on Judgment Day. On that day which is coming for all of us, we're told, where we'll stand before the perfect and holy God, and only if we've trusted in Jesus, trusted as we sang earlier about his mercy, that he has taken the punishment for our sin, will we be able to stand before God and enter into glory with him. You see, Jesus, throughout his life, showed true compassion. The disciples in Acts 5, they were willing to suffer disgrace. They showed true compassion to the crowd. And Jesus suffered a lifetime of rejection. Will we share in Jesus' sufferings? He even suffered rejection from his father on the cross as he took our sins on his shoulders. We may never in this country, we might do in the future, we may never really run from physical suffering like they do in China or countless other countries around the world. But I wonder if many of us have chosen to run from the suffering of potential rejection. Instead of embracing the persecution that may well come with standing away from and against the world, we've begun to embrace the world if we're not careful. And it's not the way it was meant to be. For me, I know this often means I'll duck hard conversations with friends about Jesus. I can be tempted maybe to steer conversations away from topics I know might be controversial or not that popular. Does Jesus trump our commitment to fit in, to be part of this culture? What would this, could this mean for you and how you live? Would it mean you'd be willing to speak to your friends about your faith, knowing that they might disagree? Would it mean you're willing to maybe speak to your brothers and sisters, your, your fellow Christians, who you can see are wandering, you can see their lives aren't matching up with how God has called us to live, and you know you might lose your friendship if you ask them about it, but are you willing to do that? Would you be willing to change jobs, reduce salary if a job is drawing you away from Christ and not towards him? Maybe lose a relationship because of that. Would you be willing to suffer the abuse of family who reject your faith 
and the utter loneliness of that, and I know that's real for many people in this room today. Would you be willing to allow your children to experience rejection <coughs> as they become aliens and strangers in the schools they go to, as they live counterculturally in this world? Now, it's important, as in it's crucial even to understand me right here, and this is why I've gone really wrong before as I've thought about this. We're to have a willingness to suffer, but we're not to pursue it. Don't pursue it for suffering's sake. Our goal instead is to pursue Jesus. And as we do that, we know that suffering will always accompany him. We share in his sufferings in order that we might share in his glory, Paul says. So at this stage, let me challenge us. Is Jesus more important than anything else in our lives? If he's not, if we can see areas where he's not, and there will be, of course, then we need to stop. We need to repent and say sorry for things which would put us more important than God. Could be our reputation. Could be our friendship group we just put above him, so we're not willing to sacrifice that by speaking anything of him. It could be our comfort. It could be our security. There's many things it could be, and we need to stop and say, no, no, Lord Jesus, you alone are worthy. Help me to make you and you alone the most important. And then... As we suffer, and it's not a promise that that will make life easier, it is not. See in verse 18 what Paul says, and, and boy did Paul suffer as we look at his life. He says, I consider that our present sufferings, verse 18, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. How do we cope? How do we keep perspective? How do we keep going? We fix our eyes on the glory that will be revealed in us, it says here. This means we keep an eternal perspective. When things get difficult, when life is tough, and it is, when we experience rejection, and we do, we marvel at what Jesus has done on the cross. We marvel at his offer of life for eternity with him in new creation, and we let that keep us going. The glory that will come as Jesus restores this broken world, we're going to look at that in a minute, ushers in the new kingdom of heaven and earth with God ruling lovingly and awesomely in his power. That is what we look towards. We're going to see hope in a minute is the antidote, is the motivation to keep going. Life is short, this says. And so the suffering we face is not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. A lot of you uh, will know our good friend John, often here at this church on Sunday. He's not able to be here today. Um, I asked him if he wouldn't mind if I shared this. And if you want to speak to someone who has suffered because of their faith, not in the pages of a biography, not in a theory, not even in... Bible here with Paul, but someone face to face who has suffered for their faith, speak with him for a bit and be encouraged. He shared this at a barbecue we had last summer. John's been utterly rejected by his Muslim family for following Jesus, completely kicked out of home. So much so that he's had to move away from them up here to Bicester. On Friday, um, he'd had quite a hard day. Me and Duncan, uh, my child, popped in to see him, as we do, um, and we talked about this passage when he said he wasn't able to make it, I said, well, let's look at Romans 8 together. Uh, and it's the same theme me and John often talk about. John, your present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Think of heaven. Let that keep you going. Let that thought help you live now. Joyfully, powerfully with the Spirit's help. We've seen how the Spirit helps us live life now as well. And when the time comes, John, God will reveal his glory in you. Wait patiently, as this passage reminds us, but eagerly for the glory to come. Do go and speak with him about his life, about why he thinks that following Jesus is worth more than anything else. 
I've spent quite a long time there on our first passage. We've gone straight in. The first point, we're called to suffer like Christ. But secondly, as we look at verses 19 to 22, do keep your Bibles open, look down with me. Creation groans, but it waits for restoration. Now, we've talked of suffering as something we share with Christ. Paul then talks about suffering he sees from living in a, in a broken, decaying world, in broken bodies. In verse 22, he says, We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. He uses this analogy. It's like a woman in labour groaning in pain, waiting for the joy of new life. Verse 19 talks about creation waiting in eager expectation just like a mother does before a child is born, waiting for the children of God to be revealed, waiting for the new creation, as we currently live in a broken world. To understand this, we need to zoom out of Romans to the start of the Bible, to Genesis. Genesis 3, we have uh, what's called the fall, where mankind rebelled against God's rule. And we see God curse the world. And he says this to Adam, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. We saw in the book of Ecclesiastes, we studied uh, a few weeks ago, this, being just, this world under the sun being described as meaningless as we live in it. Again and again, the repetition of living in this world, frustration, as it's called here. Currently, uh, we live in a climate when we're talking massively about our planet, aren't we? Our care for it, how we can look after it better, the latest tricks, the latest recommendations, the latest fads. And let me say this, we do all have an obligation to steward God's earth well, to look after it. It's been given to us. It's a good creation. We need to make sure we don't make looking after it or the world itself an idol, something more important than God. Nothing will save it from decay and destruction, we see here. The world is not looking to be made new now. In verse 20, it was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that is God, in hope that it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This is a sure and certain hope. So don't be surprised that the world is groaning. Don't be surprised there's lots of chat at the moment about the environment and how we look after it. But be encouraged that it will be liberated. It will be made new. You see, the world says that heaven is probably a little bit boring. It's angels on clouds with harps. It's yeah, whatever it might be. And when we die, that's where we go. But that is wrong. We see here, we, we talk of the new creation as physical. It will be real. It will be a new heaven and a new earth. And it groans now, yes. But it waits for the amazing birth of new life to come. That's creation. Then as we move on to verse 23 and 25, we see that we groan. Many of you, I say that will go, yeah. But we live with hope which gives us perspective. So Paul, as he continues on, he says this, he says, not only so, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We live in a state at the moment of now and not yet. See, Paul says we have the first fruits of the Spirit, but we groan. The, the first fruits are just what they say, um, the first fruits of a harvest, a signal of the amazing bounty to come. And those who trust in Jesus, and we've seen this throughout Romans 8, had the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. God living in himself with us now, helping us in this life now, 
as we live in this broken world, as we wait, as we eagerly wait for the new earth, for new life with Jesus perfectly, this is the first fruit. We, we see it now. This life is great in many aspects. But we do have a massive not yet, which we all know so readily, don't we? So we groan. We saw it earlier as we talked of the expectation of suffering. For a Christian, there is no guarantee of a perfect life now. There's no guarantee of no illness, no sickness, no death, no pain, no rejection, no loneliness. What we do have guaranteed is we don't have to suffer that alone. We have the Holy Spirit to help us. We're going to see that in a minute, to pray for us. We have our church family around us. But we do, and it's just a fact, and it's a helpful fact for us just to, just to understand. We live in a broken and decaying world. And I do say this not to depress us, but to help us see things truly so that we're able to then live rightly, not angry, not overtly frustrated, but living patiently, as we're reminded here, expectantly, yes, but patiently with hope. Um, here's my slightly depressing fact of the day. My boss, nearly every day when he walks into the office, he always goes, what do you know? Which, it's a bit of a tricky game to play, because if you tell him something about work, then he wants to chat to you about work. And if you tell him something else, then he's not quite sure. Um, so I normally try and have a random fact up my sleeve. This was my fact I had from him when he came back from holiday on Friday, tanned, looking bronzed. Did you know that 70% of us here will not be able to climb the stairs by the time we die? He didn't like that fact. It's not a great fact, but it's true. I don't know how they measured that, but I heard it. All around us is decay. All around us is death and disability. And these are all features of the fallen world. They all remind us that something has gone wrong. We saw in Genesis 3, as sin entered the world, so did sickness and disability and death. Human sin causes sickness and disability. Don't hear me wrong there. People's illnesses or disability are not caused by specific sin. This is an awful lie of the devil that a number of people and culture holds to. Jesus himself, he batters that notion down in John 9 in his gospel. He says, we hear the story where Jesus encounters a man born blind. And the disciples ask, who sinned so that this man was blind? Is it him? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus says this, he replied, neither this man or his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see here, Jesus says broken bodies, the suffering we all know, we all experience, as we get older we experience it more potentially, they point us towards Jesus. We groan in frustration because this life isn't perfect. It isn't. And the brokenness of this world points us to someone who can and has fixed it. Someone who understands. Jesus understands. If you've come in today and you're suffering and you're frustrated and you're groaning, let you hear today that Jesus understands. You see, he himself, God himself, he came into a frail, broken human body. He experienced pain. He walked a lot. His feet would have hurt. He experienced tiredness, weariness, frustration, illness probably. He experienced death. He saw his best friend Lazarus die. And he didn't go, oh well, he'll be raised again. He wept. Jesus was rejected. And he wasn't just rejected because of what he said and what he did, like we've seen. He rejected because of how he was looked. How he looked, sorry. 
Most art, I think, is wrong. Isaiah 53 says this. It says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. That's our God it's speaking about. He knows what it's like. So when we come to him, when we groan, when we speak with him, we know he understands. And he calls us now how to respond to this frustration, this groaning. He said, do it patiently. So my question might I ask, as you live and as you wait for Jesus to return, how are you waiting? Think about Christmas. I remember when I was five, um, I'd ask my parents for a drum kit. A stupid present for my parents to give me. Um, I couldn't wait. Um, I knew they'd got it somehow. I can't quite remember how I knew they got it. It's one of my earliest memories. Weeks before Christmas, but I wanted to be sure. I wanted to be sure they'd actually got it. Um, I got grumpy when they wouldn't tell me if they got it or not. Petulant five-year-old. Let's hope Duncan's better than I was. Highly unlikely. Uh, as it got nearer to Christmas, I lost all sense of patience. I snuck into their room and I saw it in their wardrobe. I'm not actually sure I've told my parents this and they listen to our podcast, so this could be the first time they've heard this. I snuck in, probably about a week beforehand, and on Christmas Day I was given the present. It was a big box, you probably tell us a drum kit, and they weren't con artists. And it was ruined, slightly. It was great, of course I had a drum kit, I could make lots of noise for a week and then I got bored with it, but it was ruined slightly. I did not wait patiently or expectantly. John Stott, um, the pastor says this, he says, we are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation, but eagerly and patiently together. Praise God, in a minute we're going to talk about how the Spirit helps us when we do not know how to pray. It's a hard balance. But how are you waiting? And then, may I ask, when you are suffering, and I know in this room a lot of people have done and continue to do so, as you live in this broken world, with broken bodies, with fallen, broken people, are we able to pray to God, teach me? As Jesus said in John 9, Lord, display yourself in this hurt and this pain. Show me more of you. Help me to be patient and help me to long for heaven. Or do we just get angry and bitter and resentful? God uses our suffering to teach us. He ordains it. And this may be hard to hear, and I'm aware this can be sensitive. We saw it here in the verse as he talked about creation. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And let me quote here from an American pastor, John Piper, because I think it's challenging. He's an American pastor. He got cancer a few years ago, and he wrote this in his book about suffering, and it is challenging. And he'll say it better than I could. It will not do to say that God only uses our cancer, but God, but God does not design it. Not that his first design for creation was a Garden of Eden with cancer, of course, but the fall did not take God off guard. He was planning redemption before creation. He saw it coming and permitted it. What God permits, he does for a reason, and that reason is his design. If God foresees molecular developments becoming cancer, he can stop it, or not. If he does not, he has a purpose. Since he is infinitely wise, it is right to call this purpose a design. Satan is real and causes many pleasures and pains, but he is not ultimate. If you don't believe your cancer was designed for you by God, you will waste it. 
don't know what you think when you hear that and read that. Friends, we live in a frustrating, broken world. How are we letting God use our suffering to make us more like him? To point others to him as they see us patiently and expectantly endure suffering, not because we're masochists, not because we like pain or suffering, but because we go, this isn't it. This body I have, the body I have now is not it. This pain I have now, it will go away. This frustration I have is not it. This illness I have will not define me. This frustrating relationship, this rejection is not the defining emotion I have. And we can say that because we know that this life isn't it. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We hope for what we do not yet have, but we will have. And we wait for it patiently. Groaning now, meditate on the glory to come. That's what Paul says in verse 18. That's how he can say the present suffering does not compare to the glory to come. He calls us to get a right perspective and then wait patiently and expectantly. How are we waiting? How are we viewing our suffering? And then we get to this, these glorious verses in verses 26 and 27. We have the Spirit who helps us and who prays on our behalf. This may seem impossible. You may have just seen that. You may have seen the words of John Piper and gone, seriously? How can you write that? How can you groan like that? How can you deal with suffering like that? It's just hard, isn't it, this life? We want to cry out. This call to embrace suffering. Remember that church in China? It just seems impossible. Well, here are these encouragements now from Paul in Romans. We've seen the Spirit's work already. He's convicted us of sin given us great assurance for those who doubt, sealed our adoption as God's children. And now we see the Spirit helps us to pray. In our weakness, Paul says, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through words, wordless groans. Prayer's hard, isn't it? True prayer is impossible without the Spirit. And when we don't know how to pray, when we're unsure of what to pray, it says here, the Spirit groans inwardly for us. He prays for us. Now, the question comes, what do we not know what to pray for that the Spirit does? Because we know lots of things we're told to pray for throughout the Bible. We're told to pray for holiness, for, for strength, to uh, resist the devil's schemes. We're told to pray for us to have faith, for us to have joy in all things. And we see that elsewhere in the Bible. God has called us how to live and calls us to pray for help in how to do that. So what is the Spirit praying for here which we can't? What is it that we don't know what to pray for in our weakness? I think the answer is this. I think we don't know the secret, actual will of God for our suffering, for our sickness. We don't know whether to pray for healing or for strength to endure. Whenever um, I lead prayers here on a Sunday, We'll often have a time we pray a bit around the world, and I struggle when we pray for the persecuted church. I want to pray for their suffering to be removed. I want to pray for peace. And yet I know that God ordains it. I know that God allows it. And I know that we see amazing growth in the church as people suffer for his name. And I know when you speak to some of the people in those churches, when you read their biographies, they go, I wouldn't have it any other way. Of course, both are right to pray for. It's not wrong to pray for either, but... We long to pray with great faith and we groan that we're not sure what God's way will be with this sickness or this loss or this imprisonment and we just don't know. 
So what an encouragement this is, that the Spirit groans with us. Encouragement because we're not expected to know God's will in every circumstance. Encouraged because God's work for us is not limited to what we can communicate to him or what we can understand. It's not like we have to say certain words from then to be able to understand our prayers. Encouraged because in our weakness, the Spirit of God is praying for you. It's ridiculous, isn't it? God prays for us. And be encouraged, as we see here, that God the Father always hears the prayers of the Spirit. Because the Spirit is God. God does not reject the prayers of God. We will suffer. We're called to suffer, and not just to endure it, but embrace it. Learn from it as we patiently wait for the new creation. But we live now with the Spirit, with God himself, praying on our behalf and groaning with us. Let that be an encouragement to us. So as we close, I want to leave us with three short stories, which I think help ground this for us and bring out some of the principles and thoughts we've seen here in Romans 8. Um, Firstly, here's a tweet. It's a bit blurry, but I saw it earlier in the week from a Welsh pastor called Di Hankey. It's interesting. He says, ever since the Lord healed my ankle in May, I found myself thinking of heaven less. It struck me that while my healing is a beautiful gift of grace, the chronic pain I experienced for all those years was a different kind of gift that causes me to hunger for heaven more. Here we see Di not wasting his pain, his suffering, but allowing him to eagerly wait for adoption, eagerly wait for heaven. Do you, when you're in pain, when you're suffering, when you're groaning, will you allow it to cause you to eagerly long for heaven? Or will you complain, get so very low and wonder, God, what are you doing? He's helping you long for that time that is to come. Secondly, there's the amazing story which I cannot tell all of, but I encourage you to read our books. There's a film from the 80s, which is classic, of Johnny Erickson Tada. Johnny was a teenager when she jumped off a diving board, broke her neck. She's been paralyzed ever since. And she's wrestled with God about why he allowed this to happen. And he used her amazingly to share the gospel with millions. She writes this on this passage on Romans 8. Romans 8.18, she says, says that we can consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For sure, I hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring this wheelchair to heaven and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my saviour. I'll hold his nail-pierced hands and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he'll know I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there in the corner? You were right when you said that in this world we'll have trouble. Because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. The stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Friends, as we suffer, will we use it to get to know Christ more, to depend on him more, to rely on him more, and remember that he's so willing to help us? He's groaning on our behalf as the Spirit prays. Johnny goes on. At that point, Christ will open his eyes, or open our eyes, to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we ever experienced on earth. 
And when we're able to stop laughing or crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. Verse 18, you can see what Johnny's like here. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us here. It's beautiful. And thirdly, and finally, I'll ask Chris to come up and be ready to sing. Now, we move on to Horatio Spafford. We're going to sing his hymn now. Let me read you a little bit about who Horatio was and the context of this hymn. This hymn was written after traumatic events in Spafford's life. The first was the death of his son at the age of two. Then the great Chicago fire of 1871, which ruined him financially. He'd been a successful lawyer and invested significantly in property in Chicago. His business interests were further hit by the economic downturn of 1873, at which time he had planned to travel to Europe with his family. In a late change of plan, he sent his family ahead while he was delayed on business concerning zoning problems following the fire. While crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship sank rapidly after a collision with a sea vessel. The lock urn, the boat, and all four of Spafford's daughters died. His wife, Anna, survived and sent the now famous telegram, Saved Alone. Shortly afterwards, as Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, he was inspired to write these words as his ship passed near where his daughters had died. Verse 18 has been key for us here today. Our present sufferings, as seen through rejection, through creation, and through our frail bodies, are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed in us. And so Spafford was able to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Friends, whatever this world will throw at us, whatever we have going on now, whatever's gone on in the past, whatever's going to happen this week, we can stand now and we can sing these great words. Whatever my lot that has taught me to know, it is well, it is well with my soul. And we can give God great praise. He's still God, he's still in charge, he's still good. And he helps us now as we live in this world while we grow. So let's stand now and let's sing these glorious words of Spafford. <laughs>